Let's look in Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Oh, my goodness. Okay, before you, before you stand up, I know I say this a lot. What's going to happen this morning, even if you don't get anything out of anything that I say, just the verses that I'm going to share out of Acts 11 and 12 are just so powerful that even if you just get that, it is life-changing, history-making, destiny-altering. In fact, it is shocking. The disciples, the, now the apostles, they are shocked after what they hear is about to happen this morning. So stand with me as we look in Acts chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? <laughs> Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you would help us to get it. As the disciples obviously didn't get it yet. I pray that you would help us to understand the power and the universal nature of your gospel and really what it means. Help us to discover as they did. On that very day, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Today we continue with our series called Acts, 30 Years That Changed the World. Last week we looked at Paul's calling, if you remember that, on the road to Damascus as he was called Saul at the time and how God changed his life. He had the personal encounter with Jesus Christ and altered his destiny and began to preach with power. Today we are back with Peter and the apostles as uh, we see God teaching them and, and they've learned for the first time of what Christianity really is. The church is so new, they haven't really quite figured it out. And we're going to see that here in just a moment. And we read it already. They still don't understand. After all they've seen, they still don't understand the true power of the gospel of Christ. So today's message is entitled, By the Grace of God. By the Grace of God. Several days ago, I decided to stick my hand in my toaster oven to uh, retrieve something out of there. You've all done it. I had it at full heat. It was kind of like playing a game of operation only with your hand. And so I very carefully, I slipped my hand in that oven and I did pretty good until just for a moment, I hit that metal grate thing. And then the, the, re, the rebound was the problem where your hand hits the elements. And I remember as a small child, when my parents tried so hard to teach me not to put my hand in the fire or you'll get burned, apparently I'm a slow believer. Uh, excuse me, I'm a slow learner. And I suspect I'm not the only one here with burn marks on their hands. Some of us take a while to learn. But God keeps trying to teach us. So today we see a few lessons. God is teaching the apostles who apparently have burns all over their hands too. <laughs> the first thing that we'll see in our passage today is that God's plans are actual plans. I know that sounds odd and obvious and silly, but a lot of times we tend to say things like, it's all in God's plans. Like it's some sort of broad, vague, generalized kind of thing. But we're about to see God's plans are actually nothing like that. In Acts chapter 10, we meet a guy named Cornelius. Now, I haven't read the passage yet about him. He is a Roman and a centurion. That is, he has a hundred soldiers under his care. He he's has authority over a hundred soldiers. 
Cornelius is what we call a God-fearer. Now, he was a Roman, and this sounds odd because Romans generally were the enemy of Jews. Jews hated Romans, Romans hated Jews. But there were some Romans, even a few centurions we already have heard about in the gospel of Christ. There was a centurion involved in the healing of his daughter, if you remember that amazing story. But there were some Roman soldiers who had come to this realization, amazingly, that all of those Greek and Roman gods were false gods. That Apollos and, and Athena and all of those gods weren't real. All of those idols were not real. Somehow, through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, they came to this realization, even though they were technically enemies with Israel, and the Israelites, they came to this realization that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the one true God. And so they began to practice their faith like Jews. Now, they weren't called Jews because their parents and their grandparents weren't Jews. And it was a generational thing. It took generations to become a Jew. And so they were called God-fearers. And Cornelius was one of those. He was a God-fearing man. He was also very generous. And we're going to see that in a minute as well. So he's praying one day, and in the middle of his... It's, by the way, three in the afternoon, which is when Jews prayed in the afternoon. And so he's in his prayer time, like a Jew would have been. And during that prayer time, uh, uh, God visits him in a vision, or an angel said in a vision. He said simply this to Cornelius, to the centurion. He said, and by the way, Cornelius is in Caesarea Maritima. Not to be confused with Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Maritima means Caesarea by the sea, which is right on the coast of um, Israel, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, just a beautiful place, beautiful beaches, and then uh, and beautiful ruins. There is a full Colosseum, uh, excuse me, not Colosseum, a, a amphitheater there. One of the best preserved amphitheaters in the world is there. There's a full hippodrome there where they ran the horses, and it's right there by the beach. I mean, it was just a stunning town there in Caesarea Maritima. Now, if you go up the very top of Israel, there's a place called Caesarea Philippi. Jesus went up there once with the disciples, met a, a woman who was a Syrophoenician woman. I'll try to talk about her in just a little bit. Caesarea Philippi is called Peneus or Banyas today. It's an archaeological site, and it's probably the prettiest place in all of Israel. It's just stunningly beautiful. But here is Caesarea Maritima. This is where Cornelius is, and here's what the angel says to him. He says, I want you to go down to Joppa, which was 39 miles to the south, right down the coastline. I want you to go to Joppa, or, 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 and, and, and when you get to Joppa, there's a place or a house called Simon the Tanner's house. It lives right on the beach, he says. I want you to go to Simon Tanner's house, and I want you to get a guy that's staying there. His name is Simon Peter. This is the angel talking. And so at, right after he has this vision, he goes down, he gets a couple of his attendants, a couple of his servants, and one of his soldiers. And he sends these guys, these three guys, to, to, he tells them about the whole thing about the vision, sends them down to Joppa to fetch a guy named Simon Peter. He doesn't know Simon Peter, doesn't know anything about Simon Peter, doesn't know why he wants Simon Peter. He's just doing what the angel tells him to do. And he's obedient, so off they go. The next day, as the three guys get closer and closer to Joppa, are about to enter Joppa, Peter is up on the roof. Uh, it's, it's time for lunch. 
And he decides before lunch to go up on the roof and pray while lunch is being prepared. Again, commend him for that. A whole lot of praying is going on and God is moving during their prayer times. I love it when, when men pray. That's good. And these two men were praying, both of them, different towns, different situations, and yet, and different visions, and yet God speaks to them while they're praying. So Peter's up there praying, and something shocking happens. He has a vision. It's a famous vision, again, a history-altering vision, but he sees this huge tablecloth come down out of heaven. And I mean, it's a big tablecloth. It's being held up. It describes being held up by the four corners of the tablecloth. And in the tablecloth were animals of all kind, clean and unclean, beef, and uh, there was... uh, uh, pigs, and it describes that there were birds in there as well. And it's basically the combo platter at Spring Creek Barbecue. That's what he's describing. <laughs> and he says, in the vision, God says, take and eat. And Peter goes, oh, no, no, because there were unclean things in there. And he says, I would never eat anything unclean. And the voice said, in the vision, the voice said, don't ever call anything unclean that God has declared is clean. That's why we get to eat bacon and pork chops. Amen. Because of this passage, this vision. And so now Peter hasn't figured it out yet because he's never tried bacon. And so he don't know what's ahead, but he does hear this. Now he's a little slow and guys, some of us are a little slow. He actually, I don't know that there's a time anywhere else in scripture this happened. He had the vision more than once. Does anybody know how many times he had the vision? He had it three times in a row. As soon as it would end, he would have the vision again, a second time and then a third time. And I guess that's where we get the term third time's a charm because it took three visions. Right after the third vision, there's a knock at the door. And an angel tells Peter right there as he's having, finishing the vision. By the way, there's some guys here uh, uh, come up from a guy named Cornelius. I want you to go with them. Doesn't give him any backstory. He has no idea where he's going or why. He just simply says, I want you to, to, to go with these guys. They're looking for you. I've sent them. So he goes downstairs. He answers the door. And it's funny what he says. He says, well, my name's Peter. I'm the one you're looking for. And uh, he says, why are you here? And the funny thing about it is they didn't know why they were there. So all they knew that they were supposed to get Peter and take him down to, uh, or up to Caesarea. And so Peter and these guys, the guys don't know what's going on. Peter doesn't know what's going on, but they've both been instructed by God, go to Caesarea Maritima. And so it's 39 miles, by the way, so a pretty good walk. And so I can imagine all during that walk, they're looking at each other like, what is going on? And so they get up to Cornelius's house and Cornelius begins to explain to them exactly why they're there. Uh, So look with me at Acts chapter 10, verse 30. Cornelius answered, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. Now I realize that 
how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. So Peter shares the gospel after that, but I want you to note what he says. So basically, they all turn to Peter and say, uh, as Cornelius says, okay, God told me, an angel told me in a vision to go get you. We went and got you. Here you are. What do you have to say? <laughs> so they're all here. By the way, the house is packed out. His family, his friends, everybody's there. It's full of Romans, by the way. And uh, so they're all listening to what this Jewish guy has to say. So it's kind of a funny situation. And, and here's the point that I'm making from this. God's plans are actual plans. Now, there's good news and bad news from this, or the, the good and the reverse. So let me put it that way. The good news is you don't have to sit out there right now thinking, you know, yeah, yeah, I know God has plans for me to, to serve him or to live a good life. You know, general broad plans, but he doesn't really care what I'm doing today. Let me tell you, God does care what you're doing today. Now, here's the reverse of that, because God has specific plans for your life. In this instance, God told them, I mean, he, he told them exactly where they were going to go, who they were going to see, what they were to say, and he said it to both parties so that everybody knew exactly what they were supposed to do and when they were supposed to do it, even though they didn't know the why. Which also tells us, by the way, we don't always need to know the why. That's for God to know. He'll explain to us when and if we need to know the why. What we need to know is what does God want me to do? And when does he want me to do it? Now, can you imagine? Had Cornelius received this vision from the angel, these directives, and he thought to himself, you know, I'm going to think about that. I've got some things to do this week and next week, but next month, I'm going to get right on that. Well, Peter would have been gone. They would have missed it. Or had they gone to Peter's house after Peter had that amazing vision and Peter would have said, look, I've got plans. I'm not just loitering here. I've got, I've got this appointment. I've got to go see these people. I've got to take care of this thing and this thing. And then in a week and a half, I'll go with you. But they didn't do that. And it's a good thing that they didn't do that. The challenge that you and I have is God's plans for you and your life are very specific. And if you miss it, you're going to miss out on what God has for you. I believe that. If you say, God, I'm going to go on a mission trip next time. I know that you want me to go. I've been feeling that conviction, but I'll go next. You don't even know that there's going to be a next time. Next time is the work of the devil a lot. If he can just delay us. Don't. If God is leading you to do something, you do it. Because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so God's timing is very specific. It's very real and it's time-based. And so they do this. Now, here's the other part of this. So they all turn to him and say, all right, none of us know what's going on. We don't know why you're here, only that you have to be here. And apparently you got something to say to us. So <laughs> start talking. We're ready. And so these people are receptive. They're ready. And then in verse 34, those amazing statements, Peter says, it says, then Peter began to speak. Now I realize it's true that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. That tells me that Peter is having a, a moment. 
He's having a Yahoo moment. He's having little light bulbs are going off in his head, finally. And he says, now I realize, what is it that he realized? Go back to the passage. What is it that he realizes? He says, now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. That tells me that until that moment, Peter thought that God did show favoritism. Because he grew up in a, in a nation where the mindset was they were frankly just better than everybody else. There were Jews and there was everybody else and everybody else was called Gentiles. And God loved Jews more than he loved Gentiles. They were his chosen people. They were the children of Abraham. They were chosen by God and, and set apart for him. And so frankly, they're just in a better group than everybody else. But that's not why Jesus died. That's not why the Bible, what the Bible tells us. In fact, we, we know that salvation is universal. It's global. It's for everyone. I love watching that video for Operation Christmas Child. In fact, I love that ministry. It may be the best ministry that's ever existed. It has done what no, uh, no denomination and no group has been able to do. They are able to, they, I, I think they're up to like 90 million boxes. They have been able to infiltrate countries where Christians are not allowed to go. They have been able to go into languages and people groups with the gospel of Jesus Christ that nobody has been able, and they're doing it with children's tomorrow, tomorrow's generation with children. I can't wait to see the power of the Holy Spirit as he is converting millions of little children to him for the glory of God. And what that will do to, to the next generation's governments across our world, what it will do to our war, wars in this world what, and for peace, what it, what it will do for the glory of God in generations to come. Only God knows. But it does tell us this. That's the beauty of it is it doesn't just go and they don't just send boxes into this country over here and that country over there. They go everywhere they can all around the world. And so Peter has until that moment thought that there is something special about Jews and that he's in with these scummy Romans. But he had the vision. See, it wasn't just about food. Although we all like pork chops, it's not just about food. God gives him that vision three times about food to let him know there is no clean and unclean. And if there's no clean and unclean, that means these Romans are no longer unclean. Because there are two things that a Jew never does. They don't eat unclean food and they don't go into the house of an unclean person because if they do, they're unclean. And God has directed him and told him to go into this house full of Romans, full of Romans. You know, for Peter, I mean, that's, again, that's a shocking moment in his life that God loves everybody equally. It tells me that God loves, and for you and me, God loves the people of Iraq and Afghanistan just as much as he loves you and me. God loves the people of Russia and the Ukraine Exactly the same. God loves everybody everywhere. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he sent into one and only son. So there's this beautiful 
universal nature about the gospel and this wahoo moment that he has that God's plans are actual plans and God went to all of this effort for a critical moment in history, a turning point. And for Christianity, it is a life or death moment. Had Peter not gotten past this moment, had the apostles not gotten past this moment, Christianity would have died in the first century like so many other religions did. It was essential that they get this. I think God did all of this for Peter to come to the moment where he said those three great words. Now I realize. Now I realize. So God's plans are actual plans and God's grace is the only other point I want to share today. God's grace is universal grace. And that's why my title is By the Grace of God. God's grace is universal grace. And again, hear me out. I know that sounds dry and theological, but it hits closer to home than you might think. So after it was over, Peter goes back to Jerusalem to give a report to the disciples, the apostles, excuse me, and the rest of the church. Now, I don't know how. I don't know if he waited a few days or, or how it happened because they don't have Facebook. They don't have telephones. But news of what happened, because Peter shares the gospel and everybody there gets saved. And they, when they get saved, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And so everybody realized, and Peter realized, oh my goodness, they just got saved. And then he said, as everybody's exhibiting gifts of the Spirit, he says, hey, why don't, why don't we baptize you? So they all got baptized after that. And so they, they, they got saved, they received the Holy Spirit, they're then baptized as believers in Christ. And it's an exciting day. That, something happened that day that had never happened before. Not just one or two Gentiles came to Christ, but a whole house full of people. And none of them were Jews. Never happened. History making, yeah, amen. And so as a result, Peter then goes back to give a report to the disciples, but they've already found out. <laughs> you know, news travels fast. And if you ask the disciples, apparently it was bad news. Let's go back to our passage, Acts 11, verse 1. Acts 11 verse 1 says, The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. <coughs> oh my goodness. These are the apostles talking here. People got saved and they're mad. They're upset. They said, Peter... How can you do this? You don't, no, we don't want those Gentiles. We're still good Jews. See, they hadn't realized at that, at that point, they still thought Christianity was a footnote to Judaism, that they're still basic Jews, that we should be Jews. Uh, and Christianity, Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection is just a, a thing that happens to Jews. They didn't realize that God had bigger plans than that. In fact, they didn't realize that the whole point of the Jewish nation was to prepare a context for the coming of Jesus Christ so that God could save the world. And this is that moment. And so they're mad. They don't, they go, what, how could you do this? Isn't it amazing that a preacher goes home and he gets scolded because people got saved? Wow. This has got to be a, an embarrassing moment in their, their past. They look back in 20 years and go, oh my goodness. 
uh, grace. That is an often uh, a difficult word for us. We tend to see grace as something that is for us rather than something that is from us. We tend to see grace that is something for us rather than something that is from us. Now, the grace that comes from Jesus Christ is for us. That's true. But there is also, because we model Christ in our life, once we accept that grace of Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he died for our sins, and in his mercy, he offers us forgiveness, salvation, and hope in him. That is the mercy of God. That's the grace of God. We experience and receive that grace. But once we do that, once we get saved, our goal in life, our place and purpose in life is to model that and, and express grace to others. And that is hard to do for that awful person you know, that unforgiving relative, that neighbor or that former friend that you'll have, or for those people who hate you, or that political party that just boils up the anger in our life. How can we ask for grace and show grace to people like that, or that terrible country, and that totalitarian government? How can we even think about being gracious to them, even if it's only in our hearts and in our minds. We struggle with that, which is interesting and unusual. It's ironic because we ought to be experts in grace. You understand that people in this dark world don't get grace. They don't understand it. They don't get it in their head because they've never experienced the grace through Jesus Christ that you and I have experienced. They don't get it, and they're not going to get it until or unless they learn about Jesus Christ and give their life to him. But you and I, we've done that. We ought to know grace. We ought to model grace. We ought to be experts at grace. We ought to be doing that constantly every day, but often the opposite is the case. We're going to have an election this week, and no matter what happens in the various states and in our country, I can tell you Tuesday is going to be a day filled with hate and anger. Don't be a part of that. Don't be a part of that. I'm going to watch. You know, what happens will happen under a sovereign God. But I beg you not to use it as an opportunity because you're going to see a lot of hate on TV. A lot of people spewing things and saying things and there are going to be marches and there are going to be people all upset and all these kinds of things. Don't, don't give in to that. Don't, don't retaliate with the same kind of hatred. There is no place for that in the kingdom of God. Do what we need to do. Vote according to your convictions. Absolutely. But don't give in to hatred. I have an article I really find insightful. I've, I've, it's, it's by a guy named Dr. Stephen Cook, and it's entitled, Why Are Some Christians Unloving? And then the, the caption under that is, why believers show no grace? Now, this is not all believers. It doesn't say that, but, but many believers. Why do believers struggle being graceful to others? Again, we are recipients of grace. You'd think we'd be best at it. Why believers show no grace? And he says this. 
I've often pondered why some people, including me, he says, who rejoice in God's grace, refuse to show grace to others. He says, I think there are several reasons. And he goes on to give five reasons. These are very brief. Five reasons why we struggle giving grace to others. Number one, ignorance of God in his word. Ignorance of God in his word. Some believers, he says, fail to understand grace as a characteristic of God. And he says that, for example, Psalms and Proverbs, John, Ephesians, Hebrews, and so on and so forth, and that he directs his people to be gracious and loving to others. Grace is not automatic in the Christian life. It must be learned and actively applied. As the believer learns about God's grace, he can then actively share it with others. Number two, some people, some Christians don't share grace because of a legalistic mindset, because of a legalistic mindset. Legalism is the belief, by the way, grace, before I give that definition, grace is simply giving people more than what they deserve, giving someone better than what they deserve. God gives us better than what we deserve. We deserve judgment and justice, and we receive mercy and grace. We receive salvation, we receive forgiveness, we receive hope through Christ. That's the mercy of God. That is grace. So here's the definition of legalism. It is the belief that one can, listen to this, can earn God's favor through religious practices and good works. And that's what Judaism does to this very day. This works-based salvation. But I know that there are people, and you know it too, that call themselves believers in Christ that still have a works-based salvation. It's easy to slip into that. This mindset prevents people from experiencing God's grace because they don't think they need it. Why should they? Their religious life and good works leads them to think that they have earned God's favor. There is nothing that you could do or I could ever do that earns God's favor. It is his grace. But he goes on to say, but this has consequences in relationships with other people. If we earn God's favor, then naturally we'll only show favor to those we feel have earned it too. Does that make sense? If we have that bent view of grace, that frankly we've earned it, then for us to be gracious to others, we have to feel that they've somehow earned it too. And they never do. Number three, a judgmental spirit. Listen to what he says here. It seems as a judgmental spirit. It seems as though some people come out of the womb with a judge's gavel in their hand. <laughs> Let me read that again. It seems as though some people come out of the womb with a judge's gavel in their hand. You know what he's talking about? These stand in the place of God rendering judgment on others according to their own arbitrary standards and expectations. Often this judgmental spirit takes the form of gossip and maligning, bad-mouthing others we don't like. Oh my goodness. All guilty. Guilty, guilty. Uh, me among them. Such a critical spirit lacks the capacity to show grace because everyone is guilty, and some more than others. In some ways, running others down is a subtle form of self-praise. And I know, and you know people like that, in our own temptation, we tear people down because it makes us feel better about ourselves. That's the judgmental spirit. Number four, arrogance. Arrogance. The truth is, some folks are just arrogant, even in the kingdom of God. So number one is ignorance of God in his word. 
Two, a legalistic mindset. Three, a judgmental spirit. And number four, arrogance. Arrogant people don't show grace. In fact, they lack the capacity because they're so self-absorbed, consumed with thinking about themselves and their own life. They have no room in their thinking and speech to show grace to others. I've heard it said that arrogant people never see their own faults, only the faults of others. And I think there's merit to that statement. And number five and last, refusing to forgive. Christians struggle showing grace because they refuse to forgive. He says, an unforgiving spirit makes it difficult to show grace. Forgiveness means we release someone from an offense or debt they owe us, or a debt we think they owe us. Forgiveness releases them from paying the penalty for their crime, whether that crime is real or imagined by us. Forgiveness does not, listen to what he says, forgiveness does not mean continuing to tolerate abuse, whether it be physical, mental, sexual, etc. He said, but it means we continue to seek God's best in their life by prayer and biblical discussion. By refusing to forgive, we end up harboring hatred and there is no room for grace in a hate-filled heart. And again, for the election this week, that's what I would say for God's people should define our thinking because there is no room for grace in a hate-filled heart. And here's what he says that I just read. He says, when we, we, ex we exercise grace toward others, it means that we continue to seek God's best in their life. That we think about Democrats, or we think about our president, or we think about this nation over here, or that government over there, and we think, God, destroy them all. That is not grace. Rather, we should think, God, would you soften their hearts? They, they, they desire a family and happiness and joy in their life. They don't even realize what they're missing out when they don't have Christ in their life. I pray that the word of God comes into their heart, that they find out about Jesus. Somebody shares the gospel with them. Their lives are transformed. You'll never meet a more hateful person than Saul and a more gracious person than Paul. If God can transform his life and God can transform your life, he can do it to others. He can do it to the leader of North Korea. He can do it to Putin in Russia. He can do it to the Democrats or the Republicans or independents or anybody else. The power of the gospel is universal and can change lives anywhere and everywhere. So how do we overcome these obstacles to grace? First, it starts with knowing that the Bible teaches or knowing what the Bible teaches about the gracious character of God. If we don't know that God is a God of grace, we're not going to get very far in being gracious to others. We cannot live what we do not know. And knowledge of God's character and word precedes living his will. We show grace only as we learn to experience it ourselves. Second, we must learn to see everyone from the biblical perspective as undeserving of God's grace and love, including ourselves. Then with eyes open, we choose to love the unlovely and show them grace. We choose to do that. We treat them better than they deserve. 
We seek God's best in their lives. Third, learn to discipline the mind and will. Daily to think and act in grace as we encounter unpleasant people or those who have hurt us, family, friends, co-workers, etc. We can consciously extend grace to them by showing love, kindness, and mercy. I've told you many times my struggles on the road with heavy traffic, and it's always heavy traffic now, and I, I tend to think bad thoughts about some people because they can't drive And I have to discipline myself. We must teach ourselves and discipline ourselves to be gracious to them and to remind ourselves Jesus died for them as much as he died for us. Loves them the same. I don't know who they are, but they probably have wife and kids. They've got problems. They have challenges. They have hopes and dreams. And they all need Jesus. We, have, we must have that perspective. And that's hard to do, is it not? Especially when they're driving like that. <laughs> Fourth, and this is important, be ready to be hurt. Be ready to be hurt. Showing grace can be very difficult because it places us in a vulnerable spot. And we don't want to be in that spot, do we? I don't. So we just don't show them grace. We decide they don't deserve it. And we don't put ourselves in a spot where we can be hurt. Listen to me. If we're going to be believers in Christ... You have to put yourself in a place where you can be hurt. Sometimes on an ongoing basis, by faith, we're okay with absorbing the pain that others inflict, much like Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says this. This is Peter speaking here, by the way, old and wise. He says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you at what? An example that you should follow in his steps, that you are to suffer as well. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Look in verse 23. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That is to God the Father. He didn't retaliate. He could have done that when he was at his trial. He could have said, you bunch of idiots. You don't know anything. I, I was here when the world was made. In fact, I made it. He could have gone on and on about their, the fact that he created oxygen and they couldn't even take another breath if it weren't for his mercy. He could have let them have it, but he simply said nothing. He didn't retaliate. I would have. Oh my goodness. But he did not. And so that's what Peter tells us. The author concludes this, since we've tested, excuse me, since we've tasted of the grace of God, let us also be gracious to others. Colossians chapter four, verse six says it this way, and this is hard, let your conversation be always full of grace. Now our conversations are full of something. <laughs> are they full of grace? So what did Peter say, by the way, to convince the apostles? Because they're mad. He's got a hostile audience and these are guys that he knows and love and they're, 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 they're frustrated at him. They're not happy. Well, he shuts them up really quick. In Acts chapter 11, verse 16, and we'll close with this. He says, as I began to speak, he's telling them what happened. As I began to speak, as I began to preach to these 
Gentiles. The Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? That's pretty smart. That may be the smartest thing Peter's ever said at this point. He says, I realize I see God entering their life. I see the Holy Spirit coming on them. I've been overruled. If God wants to do that, who am I to overrule God? And then it says in verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then God has, <laughs> God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. And I laugh because they say so then as though they just now realize, oh, oh, okay. What has Jesus been teaching them for three years? Year after year, parable after parable, sermon after sermon, miracle after miracle. And I told you about the Syrophoenician woman when they went up to Caesarea Philippi, up in northern part of the country, this Syrophoenician woman came, a woman, not even a Jewish woman, came to him and comes to him and wants a miracle, asked for a miracle. The, the disciples acted like she was just a dirty dog and they wanted her to leave. And she said to Jesus, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. She says, Jesus, I'll take your crumbs. He was amazed at her great faith and he loved her and cared about her just as much as he did disciples and he granted the miracle. When he went to the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman that was not a Jew, she was a half-breed and the Jews couldn't stand the Samaritans and yet he went to her and revealed himself to her early on in his ministry because he loved her. He has been showing and teaching and modeling the universal nature of salvation throughout his entire ministry. And now, only after he's dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, only now do they go, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance. <laughs> well, my goodness. Jesus got to be up in heaven scratching his head going, wow, what does it take? I read this week about a preacher named Craig Pullum, and he shared a parable about a baseball game that took place one day. And again, it's a parable of a baseball game. It seems that the Lord's team was playing Satan's team. The Lord's team was at bat. The score was zero to zero, and it was in the bottom of the ninth inning with two outs. <laughs> the coach and the Lord stood by observing the game. As they watched, a batter stepped up to the plate whose name was Love. Love swung at the first pitch and hit a single because love never fails. The next batter was named Faith, who also got a single because faith works with love. The next batter was named Godly Wisdom. Godly wisdom. Satan wound up and threw the first pitch. Godly wisdom looked it over and let it pass. Ball one. <laughs> Three more pitches and godly wisdom walked because godly wisdom never swings at what Satan throws. The bases were loaded. The Lord then turned to coach and told him he was now going to bring in his star player. Up to the plate stepped grace. Coach said, he sure doesn't look like much, 
Satan's whole team relaxed as they saw Grace, thinking he had won the game. Satan wound up and fired his first pitch. To the shock of everyone, Grace hit the ball harder than anyone had ever seen. But Satan was not worried as this center fielder uh, let very few get by. He went up for the ball, but it went right through his glove, hit him on the head, bounced off, and sent him crashing to the ground. Then it continued over the fence for a home run. The Lord's team won. The Lord then asked the coach if he knew why love, faith, and godly wisdom could get on base, but they could not win the game. Coach answered that he didn't know why, and the Lord explained, if your love, faith, and wisdom had won the game, you wouldn't think that you had done, or you would think that you'd done it by yourself. Love, faith, and wisdom will get you on base, but only my grace will get you home. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your grace. We are as unworthy as the most vile prisoner in our jails as the most vile enemy in our world. We have fallen short of your glory and the payment for that is death. The judgment for that is death. We did that, not you. That's justice. But in the midst of your justice, you gave us grace and his name is Jesus. He gave us better than what we deserve. And even more, you let us know. You told us at some point in our life, whether it was a sermon that we heard or in a book that we read or we picked up the Bible one day and read your word, or our parents, a neighbor, a Sunday school teacher, someone shared with us the good news. We've heard. It's come into our ears. And even more, when we heard your spirit convicted us and salvation came to our life. That's mercy. That is your grace. Father, I pray, we pray today that you would help us as you transform our heart, that we model your grace and share your grace with this dark world. They don't know. They're angry as they drive by because they don't know grace. They march in anger and bitterness and hatred as the election is coming up because they don't know grace. They have totalitarian governments that are brutal to people or they go into unjust wars with others because they don't know grace. So, Father, we ask and pray that you would help us, teach us, convict us, that as we go out today into this world, we wake up tomorrow morning, we go to work or go to school, may we be conscious of the fact that we are to model your grace to others. The first unkind word, may we give them grace. The first bit of gossip that we hear, may we give them grace. The first hatred that is hurled our way, may we give them grace because you gave grace to us. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you this morning to model the grace of Christ in your life? 
every hour, every day, everywhere you go. It may also challenge you to come before God and say, God, you have a timing and a plan in my life. What do you want me to do today? Will you do that? God has a purpose for you being here this morning. What is that purpose? Why does he have you here? Maybe you've never accepted Christ. You've never surrendered to him. And you realize now through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now, and you realize, oh, I need this grace. I've messed up. Listen, there's not anything you've ever done, thought, or said that God will not forgive. It doesn't matter what it was. God will forgive you. Even if nobody else will, God will forgive you if you'll accept that grace in Jesus Christ. Will you do that this morning? Just come up and say, Pastor, I want to be saved today. Maybe God is calling you or your family to join with us. You are welcome here at First Baptist Church. Just come up and say, Pastor, we'd like to join. Or maybe you just want to come and get on your knees and thank God for His grace in your life and ask God to challenge you and help you as you show His grace to the world. Would you stand? No one's looking around. As we all stand, all heads are bowed, all eyes are closed. This time is for you. This opportunity is for you. Right now, as we pray, you come.